Book the Fifth The Dumb Detective Chapter One The Count de Merol at Home The denizens of Friar Street and such localities, being in the habit of waking in the morning to the odor of melted tallow and boiling soap, and of going to sleep at night with the smell of burning bones under their noses, can, of course, have nothing of an external nature in common with the inhabitants of Park Lane and its vicinity. For the gratification of whose olfactory nerves exotics live short and unnatural lives, on staircases, in boudoirs, and in the conservatories of rich plate glass and fairy architecture, where perfumed waters play in gilded fountains through the long summer days. It might be imagined, then, that the common griefs and vulgar sorrows, such as hopeless love and torturing jealousy, sickness or death or madness or despair, would be also banished from the regions of Park Lane and entirely confined to Friar Street. Any person with a proper sense of the fitness of things would of course conclude this to be the case, and would as soon picture my lady the Duchess of Mayfair dining on red herrings and potatoes at the absurd hour of one o'clock p.m., or black-leading her own grate with her own alabaster fingers, as weeping over the death of her child, or breaking her heart for her faithless husband, just like Mrs. Stiggins, potato and coal merchant on a small scale, or Mrs. Higgins, whose sole revenues come from mangle and done here. And it does seem hard, oh my brethren, that there should be any limit to the magic power of gold. It may exclude bad airs, foul scents, ugly sights, and jarring sounds. It may surround its possessors with beauty, grace, art, luxury, and so-called pleasure. But it cannot shut out death or care. For to these stern visitors, Mayfair and St. Giles must alike open the reluctant doors whenever the dreaded guests may be pleased to call. You do not send cards for your morning concerts or fete to sorrow or sadness, O oh noble duchesses and countesses. But have you never seen their faces in the crowd when you least look to meet them? Through the foliage and rich blossoms in the conservatory and through the white damask curtains of the long French window, the autumn sunshine comes with subdued light into a boudoir on the second floor of a large house in Park Lane. The velvet pile carpets in this room and the bedchamber and dressing room adjoining are made in imitation of a mossy ground on which autumn leaves have fallen. So exquisite, indeed, is the design that it is difficult to think that the light breeze which enters at the open window cannot sweep away the fragile leaf which seems to flutter in the sun. The walls are of the palest cream color, embellished and enameled portraits of Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, Madame Elizabeth, and the unfortunate boy prisoner of the temple, led into the oval panels on the four sides of the room. Everything in this apartment, though perfect in form and color, is subdued and simple. There are none of the Buell and Marqueterie cabinets, the artificial flowers, or moulu clocks, French prints, and musical boxes, which might adorn the boudoir of an opera dancer or the wife of a parvenu. The easy chairs and luxurious sofas are made of a polished white wood and are covered with white damask. On the marble mantelpiece there are two or three vases of the purest and most classical forms. 
and these, with Canovo's bust of Napoleon, are the only ornaments in the room. Near the fireplace, in which burns a small fire, there is a table loaded with books, French, English, and German, the newest publications of the day. But they are tossed in a great heap, as if they had one by one been looked at and cast aside unread. By this table there is a lady seated, whose beautiful face is rendered still more striking by the simplicity of her black dress. This lady is Valerie de Lancy, now Countess de Marolles, for Monsieur Marolles has expanded some part of his wife's fortune upon certain estates in the south of France, which give him the title of Count de Marolles. A lucky man, this Raymond Marolles, a beautiful wife, a title, and an immense fortune are no such poor prizes in the lottery of life. But this Raymond is a man who likes to extend his possessions, and in South America he has established himself as a banker on a large scale, and he has lately come over to England with his wife and son for the purpose of establishing a branch of this bank in London. Of course, a man with his aristocratic connections, an enormous fortune, is respected and trusted throughout the continent of South America. Eight years have taken nothing from the beauty of Valerie de Marolles. The dark eyes have the same fire, the proud head the same haughty grace. But alone and in repose, the face has a shadow of deep and settled sadness that is painful to look upon, for it is the gloom sadness of despair. The world in which this woman lives, which knows her only as the brilliant, witty, vivacious, and sparkling Parisian, little dreams that she talks because she dare not think, that she is restless and vivacious because she dare not be still, that she hurries from place to place in pursuit of pleasure and excitement because only in excitement and in a life which is as false and hollow as the mirth she assumes can she fly from the phantom which pursues her. O shadow that will not be driven away, O pale and pensive ghost that rises before us in every hour and in every scene to mock the noisy and tumultuous revelry which, by the rule of opposites, we call pleasure. Which of us is free from your haunting presence, O phantom, whose name is the past? Valerie is not alone. A little boy between seven and eight years of age is standing at her knee, reading aloud to her from a book of fables. A frog beheld an ox, he began, but as he read the first words, the door of the boudoir opened, and a gentleman entered, whose pale fair face, blue eyes, light eyelashes, and dark hair and eyebrows proclaimed him to be the husband of Valerie. Ah, he said, glancing with a sneer at the boy, who lifted his dark eyes for a moment, and then dropped them on his book with an indifference that bespoke little love for the newcomer. "'You are teaching your child, madame, teaching him to read. Is not that an innovation? The boy has a fine voice and the ear of a maestro. Let him learn, and very likely one of these days he will be as great a man as—' Valerie looks at him with the old contempt, the old icy coldness in her face. "'Do you want anything of me this morning, monsieur?' she asked. "'No, madame. Having the entire command of your fortune, what can I ask? A smile? 
"'Nay, madame, you keep your smiles for your son. "'And again, they are so cheap in London, the smiles of beauty. "'Then, monsieur, since you require nothing at my hands, "'may I ask why you insult me with your presence?' "'You teach your son to respect his father, madame,' said Raymond, with a sneer, "'throwing himself into an easy chair opposite Valerie. "'You set the future Count de Morole a good example. "'He'll be a model of filial piety, as you are of. "'Do not fear, Monsieur de Morole, "'but that one day I shall teach my son to respect his father. "'Fear, rather, lest I teach him to avenge. "'Nay, madame, it is for you to fear that.' During the whole of this brief dialogue, the little boy has held his mother's hand, looking with his serious eyes anxiously in her face. Young as he is, there is a courage in his glance and a look of firmness in his determined under lip that promises well for the future. Valerie turns from the cynical face of her husband and lays a caressing hand on the boy's dark ringlets. Do those ringlets remind her of any other dark hair, do any other eyes look out in the light of those she gazes at now? You were good enough to ask me just now, madame, the purport of my visit, your discrimination naturally suggesting to you that there is nothing so remarkably attractive in the society to be found in these apartments, infantine lectures in words of one syllable included. He glances towards the boy as he speaks, and the cruel blue eyes are never so cruel "'as when they look that way. "'As to induce me to enter them "'without some purpose or other. "'Perhaps Monsieur will be so good "'as to be brief in stating that purpose. "'He may imagine that being entirely devoted to my son, "'I do not choose to have his studies "'or even his amusements interrupted. "'You bring up young Count Almaviva "'like a prince, madame. "'It is something to have good blood in one's veins, "'even on one side.' If she could have killed him with the look of those bright dark eyes, he would have fallen dead as he spoke the words that struck one by one at her broken heart. He knew his power. He knew wherein it lay and how to use it, and he loved to wound her. Because though he had won wealth and rank from her, he had never conquered her, and he felt that even in her despair she defied him. "'You are irrelevant, monsieur. Pray be so kind as to say what brought you here,' "'where I would not insult your good sense "'by saying you are a welcome visitor. "'Briefly, then, madame, "'our domestic arrangements do not please me. "'We are never known to quarrel, it is true, "'but we are rarely seen to address each other, "'and we are not often seen in public together. "'Very well, this in South America, "'where we were king and queen of our circle. "'Here it will not do. "'To say the least, it is mysterious. "'The fashionable world is scandalous.' "'People draw inferences. "'Monsieur does not love Madame, "'and he married her for her money. "'Or, on the other hand, "'Madame does not love Monsieur, "'but married him because she had some motive for so doing. "'This will not do, Countess. "'A banker must be respectable, "'or people may be afraid to trust him. "'I must be what I am now called the eminent banker, "'and I must be universally trusted. "'That you may the better betray, Monsieur,' That is the motive, for winning people's confidence in your code of moral economy, is it not? Madame is becoming a logician. Her argument, by induction, does her credit. But your business, monsieur? 
was to signify my wish, madame, that we should be seen oftener together in public. The Italian opera now, madame, though you have so great a distaste for it, a distaste which, by the by, you did not possess during the early period of your life, is a very popular resort. All the world will be there tonight to witness the debut of a singer of continental celebrity. Perhaps you will do me the honor to accompany me there. I do not take any interest, monsieur. In the fortunes of tenor singers? Ah, how completely we outlive the foolish fancies of our youth. But you will occupy the box on the grand tier of Her Majesty's Theatre, which I have taken for the season. It is to your sons, to Cherubino's interest, for you to comply with my request. He glances towards the boy once more, with a sneer on his thin lips, and then turns and bows to Valerie as he says, Au revoir, madame. I shall order the carriage for eight o'clock. A horse, which at a sale at Tattersall's had attracted the attention of all the votaries of the corner, for the perfection of his points and the enormous price which he realized, caracoles before the door, under the skillful horsemanship of a well-trained and exquisitely appointed groom. Another horse, equally high-bred, waits for his rider, the Count de Merol. The groom dismounts and holds the bridle as the gentleman emerges from the door and springs into the saddle. A consummate horseman, the Count de Merol, a handsome man, too, in spite of the restless and shifting blue eyes and the thin, nervous lips. His dress is perfect, just keeping pace with the fashion sufficiently to denote high tone in the wearer without outstripping it so as to stamp him a parvenu. It has that elegant and studious grace, which to a casual observer looks like carelessness, but which is in reality the perfection of the highest art of all, the art of concealing art. It is only twelve o'clock, and there are not many people of any standing in Piccadilly this September morning. But of the few gentlemen on horseback who pass Monsieur de Merol, the most aristocratic-looking bow to him. He is well known in the great world as the eminent banker, the owner of a superb house in Park Lane. He possesses a man-cook of Parisian renown who wears the cross of the Legion of Honor, given him by the first Napoleon on the occasion of a dinner at Talleyrand's. He has estates in South America and in France, a fortune said to be boundless, and a lovely wife. For the rest, if his own patent of nobility is of rather fresh date, and if, as impertinent people say, he never had a grandfather, or indeed anything in the way of a father to speak of, it must be remembered that great men, since the days of mythic history, have been celebrated for being born in rather an accidental manner. But why a banker? Why, possessed of an enormous fortune, try to extend that fortune by speculation? That question lies between Raymond de Merol and his conscience. Perhaps there are no bounds to the ambition of this man, who entered Paris eight years ago, an obscure adventurer, and who, according to some accounts, is now a millionaire. Chapter 2 Mr. Peters Sees a Ghost Mr. Peters, pensioned off by Richard's mother with an income of a hundred pounds a year, has taken and furnished for himself a small house in a very small square not far from Mr. Darley's establishment, and rejoicing in the high-sounding address of Wellington Square, Waterloo Road. 
having done this, he feels that he has nothing more to do in life than to retire upon his laurels and enjoy the odium cum dignitat which he has earned so well. Of course, Mr. Peters, as a single man, cannot by any possibility do for himself, and as, having started an establishment of his own, he is no longer in a position to be taken in and done for, the best thing he can do is to send for cuppins. Accordingly, he does send for cuppins. Cuppins is to be cook, housekeeper, laundress, and parlor-maid all in one, and she is to have ten pounds per annum, and her tea, sugar and beer, wages only known in Slopperton in very high and aristocratic families, where footmen are kept, and no followers or Sundays out aloud. So Cuppins comes to London, bringing the foundling with her, and arriving at Euston Square Station at eight o'clock in the evening, is launched into the bewildering gaiety of the new road. Well, it is not paved with gold, certainly, this marvelous city, and it is, maybe on the whole, just a little muddy. But, oh, the shops! What emporiums of splendor! What delightful excitement is being nearly run over every minute! To say nothing of that delicious chance of being knocked down by the crowd, which is collected round a drunken woman, expostulating with a policeman. Of course, there must be a general election, or a great fire, or a man hanging, or a mad ox at large, or a murder just committed in the next street, or something wonderful going on, or there never could be such crowds of excited pedestrians, and such tearing and rushing, and smashing of cabs, carts, omnibuses, and parcel delivery vans, all of them driven by charioteers in the last stage of insanity, and drawn by horses as wild as that time-honored steed employed in the artistic and poetical punishment of our old friend Mazeppa. Tottenham Court Road, what a magnificent promenade, occupied, of course, by the houses of the nobility. And is that magnificent establishment with the iron shutters Buckingham Palace or the Tower of London? Coppins inclines to thinking it must be the Tower of London, because the iron shutters look so warlike and are evidently intended as a means of defense in case of an attack from the French. Coppins is told by her escort, Mr. Peters, that this is the emporium of Messrs. Shulbread, Haberdashers, and Linen Drapers. She thinks she must be dreaming and wants to be pinched and awakened before she proceeds any further. It is rather a trying journey for Mr. Peters, for Cuppins wants to stop the cab every twenty yards or so to get out and look at something in this wonderful Tottenham Court Road. But the worst of Cuppins, perhaps, is that she has almost an insane desire to see that Tottenham Court, whence Tottenham Court Road derives its name and when told that there is no such place and never was, leastways never as Mr. Peters heard of, she begins to think London, in spite of all its glories, rather a taken. Then again, Coppins is very much disappointed at not passing either Westminster Abbey or the Bank of England, which she had made up her mind were both situated at Charing Cross. And it was a little trying for Mr. Peters to be asked whether every moderate-sized church they passed was St. Paul's Cathedral, or every little bit of dead wall Newgate, to go over a bridge, and for it not to be London Bridge, but Waterloo Bridge, was in itself a mystery, but to be told that the shot tower on the Surrey side was not the monument was too bewildering for endurance. 
as to the Victoria Theatre, which was illuminated to such a degree that the box entrance seemed as a pathway to fairyland, Coppins was so thoroughly assured in her own mind of its being Trury Lane and nothing else, unless, perhaps, the Houses of Parliament or Covent Garden, that no protestations on Mr. Peter's fingers could root out the fallacy. But the journey came to an end at last, and Cuppins, safe with bag and baggage, at number 17 Wellington Square, partook of real London porter with Mr. Peters and the foundling in an elegant front parlor, furnished with a brilliantly polished but rather rickety Pembroke table that was covered with a royal Stuart plaid woolen cloth. Half a dozen cane-seated chairs, so new and highly polished as to be apt to adhere to the garments of the person who so little understood their nature of properties as to attempt to sit upon them, a Kidderminster carpet, the pattern of which was of the size adapted to the requirements of a town hall, but which looked little disproportionate to Mr. Peter's apartment, two patterns and a quarter stretching the entire length of the room, and a mantelpiece ornamented with a looking-glass, divided into three compartments by gilded Corinthian pillars, and further adorned with two black velvet kittens, one at each corner, and a velvet boy on a brown velvet donkey in the center. The next morning, Mr. Peters announced his intention of taking the foundling into the city of London for the purpose of showing him the outside of St. Paul's, the monument, Punch and Judy, and other intellectual exhibitions adapted to his tender years. Coppins was for starting then and there on a visit to the pig-faced lady, than which magnificent creature she could not picture any greater wonder in the whole metropolis. But Coppins had to stay at home in her post of housekeeper, and to inspect and arrange the domestic machinery of number 17 Wellington Square. So the foundling, being magnificently arrayed in a clean collar and a pair of boots that were too small for him, took hold of his protector's hand, and they sallied forth. If anything, Punch and Judy bore off the palm in this young gentleman's judgment of the miracles of the big village. It was not so sublime a sight, perhaps, as the outside of St. Paul's, but on the other hand, it was a great deal cleaner, and the foundling would have liked to have seen Sir Christopher Wren's masterpiece picked out with a little fresh paint before he was called upon to admire it. The monument, no doubt, was very charming in the abstract, but unless he could have been perpetually on the top of it, and perpetually within a hair's breadth of precipitating himself onto the pavement below, it wasn't very much in his way. But Punch, with his delightfully original style of elocution, his overpoweringly comic domestic passages with Judy, and the dolefully funny dog with a frill round his neck, and an evident dislike for his profession, this indeed was an exhibition to be seen continually, and to be more admired the more continually seen, as no doubt the foundling would have said had he been familiar with Dr. Johnson, which it is to be hoped for his own peace of mind he wasn't. It is rather a trying day for Mr. Peters, and he is not sorry then, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, he has taken the foundling all round the Bank of England, that young gentleman insisting on peering in at the great mass of windows in the fond hope of seeing the money, and has shown him the clearing house, and they are going out of Lombard Street of their way to an omnibus which will take them home. But just as they are leaving the stop, the foundling makes a dead stop, and constrains Mr. Peters to do the same. 
standing before the glass doors of a handsome building, which a brass plate announces to be the Anglo-Spanish-American Bank, are two horses and a groom in faultless buckskins and tops. He is evidently waiting for someone within the bank, and the foundling vehemently insists upon waiting, too, to see the gentleman get on horseback. The good-natured detective consents, and they loiter about the pavement for some time before the glass doors are flung open by a white neckcloth clerk, and a gentleman of rather foreign appearance emerges therefrom. There is nothing particularly remarkable in this gentleman. The fit of his pale lavender gloves is certainly exquisite. The style of his dress is a recommendation to his tailor. But what there is in his appearance to occasion Mr. Peters holding on to a lamppost, it is difficult to say. But Mr. Peters did certainly cling to the nearest lamppost, and did certainly turn as white as the whitest sheet of paper that ever came out of a stationer's shop. The elegant-looking gentleman, who was no other than the Count de Marolle, had better occupation for his bright blue eyes than the observation of such small deer as Mr. Peters and the foundling. He mounted his horse and rode slowly away, quite unconscious of the emotion his appearance had occasioned in the breast of the detective. No sooner had he done so than Mr. Peters, relinquishing the lamppost and clutching the astonished foundling, darted after him. In a moment, he was in the crowded thoroughfare before Guild Hall. An empty cat passed close to them. He hailed it with frantic gesticulation and sprang in, still holding the foundling. The Count Marole had to rein in his horse for a moment from the press cabs and omnibuses, and at Mr. Peter's direction, the foundling pointed him out to the cabman with the emphatic injunction to follow that gent and not to lose sight of him nohow. The charioteer gives a nod, cracks his whip, and drives slowly after the equestrian, who has some difficulty in making his way through Cheapside. The detective, whose complexion still wears a most striking affinity to writing paper, looks out of the window, as if he thought the horsemen they are following would melt into thin air, or go down a trap in St. Paul's churchyard. The foundling follows his protector's eyes with his eyes, then looks back at Mr. Peters, and evidently does not know what to make of the business. At last, his patron draws his head in the window and expresses himself upon his fingers thus. How can it be him when he's dead? This is beyond the foundling's comprehension, who evidently doesn't understand the drift of the query and is evidently doesn't altogether like it, for he says, Don't, come I say, don't now. How can it be him, continues Mr. Peters, enlarging upon the question, when I found him dead myself, out upon that there heath, and took him back to the station, and afterwards see him buried, which would have been between four crossroads with a stake driven through him if he'd poisoned himself fifty years ago. This rather obscure speech is no more to the foundling's liking than the last, for he cries out more energetically than before, "'I say now, I tell you I don't like it, Father. "'Don't you try it on now, please. "'What does it mean? "'Who's been dead fifty years ago "'with a stake drove through him "'and four crossroads and a heath? "'Who?' "'Mr. Peters puts his head out of the window "'and directing the attention of the foundling "'to the elegant equestrian they are following, "'says emphatically, upon his fingers, "'Him!' 
"'Dead is he,' said the foundling, "'clinging very close to his adopted parent. "'Dead? "'And very well he looks, considering. "'But,' he continued, "'in an awful and anxious whisper, "'where's the stake in the four crossroads "'as was druv through him? "'Does he wear that air loose coat to hide him?' "'Mr. Peters didn't answer this inquiry, "'but seemed to be ruminating. "'And if one may be allowed the expression, "'thought aloud upon his fingers, "'as it was his habit to do at times.' "'There couldn't be two men so much alike, surely. "'That one I found dead was the one I saw at the public, "'talking to the young woman. "'And if so, this is another one. "'For that one was dead, as sure as egg is eggs. "'When eggs ceases to be eggs, which,' "'continued Mr. Peters discoursively, "'considering they're selling at twenty for a shilling, "'French and dangerous, if you're not partial to young parboiled chickens, "'is not likely yet a while. "'Why, then?' "'that one I found on the heath will come to life again.' "'The foundling was too busy stretching his neck "'out of the window of the cab in his eagerness "'to keep his eye upon the Count de Marolle "'to pay any attention to Mr. Peter's fingers. "'The outside of St. Paul's "'and the performance of Punch and Judy "'were very well in their way, "'but they were mild dissipations indeed "'compared to the delight of following a ghost.' which had had a stake driven through his phantasmal form and more lavender kid gloves. "'There was one thing,' continued the musing detective, "'which struck me as curious when I found the body of that young gent. "'Where was the scar from the sovereign as that young woman throwed at him? "'Why, nowheres. "'Not a trace of it to be seen, which I looked for in particular. "'And yet that cut wasn't one to leave a scar that would wear out in six months.' "'nor yet in six years either. "'I've had my face scratched myself, though I'm a single man, "'and I know what that is to last, "'and the awkwardness one has to go through "'in saying one's been playing with spiteful kittens and such like. "'But what's that to a cut half an inch deep "'from the sharp edge of a sovereign? "'If I could but get to see his forehead. "'The cut was just over his eyebrow, "'and I could see the mark of it with his hat on.' While Mr. Peters abandons himself to such reflections as these, the cab drives on and follows the Count de Merle down Ludgate Hill, through Fleet Street and the Strand, Charing Cross and Pall Mall, St. James Street and Piccadilly, till it comes up with him at the corner of Park Lane. This, says Mr. Peters, is where the swells live. Very likely he hangs out here. He's a-riding, as if he was going to stop presently, so we'll get out. "'whereupon the foundling interprets to the cabman "'Mr. Peter's wish to that effect, "'and they alight from the vehicle. "'The detective's surmise is correct. "'The Count stops, gets off his horse, "'and throws the reins to the groom. "'It happens at this very moment "'that an open carriage, "'in which two ladies are seated, "'passes on its way to the Grovesner Gate. "'One of the ladies bows to the South American banker, "'and as he lifts his hat in returning her salute, "'Mr. Peter's, who is looking at nothing particular, sees very distinctly the scar, which is the sole memorial of that public house encounter on the banks of the Sloshy. As Raymond throws the reins to the groom, he says, I shall not ride again today, Curtis. Tell Morgan to have the Countess's carriage at the door at eight for the opera. Mr. Peters, who doesn't seem to be a person blessed with the faculty of hearing, but who is, to all appearance, "'busily engaged in drawing the attention of the foundling "'to the architectural beauties of Grosner Gate, "'may nevertheless take due note of this remark. 
The elegant banker ascends the steps of his house, at the hall door of which stand gorgeous and obsequious flunkies, whose liveries and legs alike fill with admiration the juvenile mind of the foundling. Mr. Peters is very grave for some time, as they walk away. But at last, when they have got halfway down Piccadilly, he has recourse once more to his fingers, and addresses his young friend thus. "'What did you think of him, Slosh?' "'Which,' says the foundling, "'the cove in the red velvet breeches as open the door, "'or the swell ghost?' "'The swell. "'Well, I think he's uncommon handsome "'and very easy in his manners, "'all things taken into consideration,' "'said that elderly juvenile with deliberation. "'Oh, you do, do you, Slosh?' "'Slosh repeats that he does. "'Mr. Peters' gravity increases every moment.' "'Oh, you do, do you, Slosh?' she asks again, and again the boy answers. At last, to the considerable inconvenience of the passers-by, the detective makes a dead stop and says, "'I'm glad you think him handsome, Slosh, and I'm glad you think him easy, which, all things considered, he is uncommon. In fact, I'm glad he meets your views as far as personal appearance goes, because between you and me, Slosh, that man's your father.' It is the boy's turn to hold on to the lamp post now, to have a ghost for a father, and as Slosh afterwards remarked, a ghost as wears polishy boots and lives in Park Lane too, was enough to take the breath out of any boy, however preternaturally elderly and superhumanly sharp his police office experiences may have made him. On the whole, the foundling bears the shock very well, shakes off the effect of the information, and is ready for more in a minute. "'I wouldn't have you mention it just now, you know, Slosh,' continues Mr. Peters, "'because we don't know what he may turn out "'and whether he may quite answer our purpose in the parental line. "'There's a little outstanding matter between me and him "'that I shall have to look him up for. "'I may want your help, and if I do, you'll give it faithful, won't you, Slosh?' "'Of course I will,' said that young gentleman. "'Is there any reward out for him, father?' "'He always called Mr. Peters father,' and wasn't prepared to change his habit in deference to any ghostly phenomenon in the way of a parent suddenly turning up in Lombard Street. "'Is there any reward out for him?' he asks eagerly. "'Bankers is good for something in the levanting line, nowadays.' The detective looked at the boy's sharp, thin features with a scrutinizing glance common to men of his profession. "'Then you'll serve me faithful, if I want you, Slosh.' I thought perhaps you might let family interests interfere with business, you know. Not a bit of it, said the youthful enthusiast. I'd hang my grandmother for a sovereign, and the pride of catching her, if she was a downy one. Chips of old blocks is of the same wood, and it's only reasonable there should be a similarity in the grain, mused Mr. Peters, as he and the foundling rode home in an omnibus. I thought I'd make him a genius, but I didn't know there was such an undercurrent of his father— "'It'll make him the glory of his profession. "'Soft-heartedness has been the ruin of many a detective, "'as has had the brains to work out a deep-laid game, "'but not the heart to carry it through.'" Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.